great blessing for us now to join our hearts together as we go before the throne in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come now and we bring all of our prayers and our petitions, our thanksgiving, our praises, our struggles, our doubts. Father, we bring everything to You and we lay it at Your feet, lifting up to You those things that we know that we cannot carry on our own, Father. And we are amazed because we know that the way to You is barred, that our voices could not even be heard by You if it were not for One who went before us, our Savior Jesus Christ. That if not for Him, our sin would separate us from You as far as the East is from the West. But because of Him, You have now separated us from our sin as far as the East is from the West. But Father, in coming to You, and part of the reason why coming to You is so hard, and why all of us seem to struggle in our prayer lives, is because we know that when we come, we still bring... Those things that make us feel like failures. We bring those things which still bring us shame. We bring those things which still cause us doubt in ourselves and in You. Father, we pray that You would deal with us mercifully. That You would pour Your grace out. That You would remind us of the story. Of a God who loved His people. So much that He loved them even while they were still enemies. Father, that You know us completely. You knew us before we came to You. You knew us when we came to You. You know us now. And even in knowing us, You bid us come. Father, we do bring our sin. We do bring our failure. We do bring our shortcoming. And we repent. We confess that we fall short of Your glory in thought, in word, and in deed daily. Father, that there, we confess that there are times where we feel like we are no better than we once were. Father, we need Your Spirit. We need Your Spirit to work life in us. To work life and righteousness in our hearts, from our hearts outward, so that we might put to death the deeds of the body and the deeds of the flesh. Father, we need your Spirit to give us life, that we may love one another the way that you've called us to. Father, you called us to love one another in such a way that the world would know the love that you have had with the Son and the Spirit from the beginning, from before time. Father, You've called us to love one another in such a way that the world would know how much You have loved us. Father, we fall short of that. But Father, we know that you're, in, you're at work in the midst of Your people, that You're building Your church, that You're building Your kingdom. Father, I thank You for this church. I thank You for its ministries. I thank You for its history. I thank You for its people. I thank You for those who You will bring into it now and in the future. I pray that you would continue to work through the Sunday schools and the small groups and all the various ministries of this church. Father, that you would bring life through community. 
that you would build up the body here at Lake Oconee. Father, I, I know I can thank you for all the many ways that they have blessed me and the ministry of RUF at Mercer and how I know they uh, are a blessing to so many other ministries worldwide. I pray that you would continue doing your work through this congregation. Father, I pray for the transition time that has been going on here for the better part of a year, for more than a year. Father, you know the man uh, that will fill this pulpit uh, someday in the future. We pray that you would begin preparing his heart even now. Continue preparing the hearts of the people here. Father, the prayer list is long. The needs are many. You know them all. You know them physical. You know them mental. You know them emotional. You know them spiritual. And you meet them all. And we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would do it in such a way that those who are hurting, those who are in need, that they would feel uh, the comfort of your hands, of your healing hands. And that if you would see fit to use uh, this congregation in a tangible way, that you would open doors for us to do so. Father, we come now to your word and we pray that you would speak to us. Speak through your spirit, speak into our hearts, speak words of grace and truth. But above all, Father, we pray that you would speak the words of life and that you would inscribe them indelibly upon our hearts, that we would be those who leave here not the same as when we entered. That we would go out into our weeks, in our days, living for you, that our whole lives would be a sacrifice of praise to you. We bring all of these, both spoken and unspoken, before you, knowing that you hear us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus is one of my favorite books of the Bible, if not the favorite. I love it. And while you're turning there, I'll just uh, I'll say thank you for having me again at I realized that I was here exactly 12 months ago, um, the, the last Sunday of June uh, a year ago was my first time here, so this is my second time here, and I'm glad to be back, I'm glad for the opportunity to be before you. I brought my three children, I was smiling at them back this way, they went to Children's Church, I have a six-year-old boy, five-year-old boy, and a two, almost three-year-old girl, um, and I did not bring my wife, because she's out of town, um, so I've been flying solo all weekend, so you're, you're allowed to be impressed with me. Um, now, really, they're, they're just really good kids, so you should be impressed with my parenting. Um, no, but we are, we are glad to be here. I'm glad that we could make this trip. And um, I just want to say thank you uh, for your support of the work of RUF at Mercer. I've been there a year and a half now. I love it. Uh, I can't wait for students to get back again in the fall and have another go at another school year. The, the campus, the university campus... Uh, there's just no place like it, uh, especially for ministry, uh, and it's, it can be a war zone, I guess, a war zone of ideas and uh, desires and uh, all kinds of things, but uh, it, is a, it is a wonderful place to do ministry, and the Lord has blessed us richly and, and, and very much through you and your support, so I do thank you. If you would, let's, uh, let's read the entirety of Exodus chapter 2 here together, and let's look into it. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, 
And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became, he became her son. She named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. I want to begin with one thought, uh, and it's a borrowed thought. It's not original to me, but I think it's true. Um, The thought that narrative fuels lifestyle. Narrative fuels lifestyle. In other words, the story that you believe about yourself, about life, about God, about uh, you name it. The story you believe about life, the story that you tell yourself every day, dictates the way in which you live. Narrative fuels lifestyle. The story that you understand life to be dictates how you live. And so one thought is to think to yourself, what is your story? What is my story? Have I found my story? Have I thought about my story? Do I know my story? 
Well, Exodus is, uh, if it's nothing else, it's a story. And it's a great story, and it's a true story. And, and actually, in the history of the people of God, it became a defining story because it was a salvation story. You actually see uh, the writers of the Bible uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament going back to the events of the Exodus to make sense of their lives in the present. Exodus was a defining story. And like any good story, there has to be a turning point, right? There has to be that moment where you know nothing is ever going to be the same. I think in Exodus chapter 2 here, we find just that, a turning point. A turning point here um, as Moses' life and the history of the people would never be the same. And you read through the first two chapters of Exodus and you kind of get some some seemingly insignificant details. But what we actually come to find is that they're all swelling with significance. I think a big thing in our culture, and I don't know if this is new necessarily, but uh, I think a big thing in our culture is transformation, right? There's, there's any number of things out there on the market, on TV, on the Internet, that offer to turn things around for you, whether it be finance, whether it be um, maybe, maybe a diet or a special workout to change the way you look or the way uh, you feel about yourself. I know with college students, uh, that the millennial generation is really caught up with social justice, Right? They want to go somewhere in the world, even if it's just for seven days, to feel like they've made some sort of imprint in the world and the betterment of uh, our future. Um, transformation's a big thing. And I don't know where you find yourself this morning. Whether you find yourself bored with life, whether you find yourself fat and happy, whether you find yourself exhausted. I think we can all agree that there's this drive within all of us for things to turn around. And here's the question. Would you know when it was happening. Especially when it comes to God. Would you know when God was doing something in your life? How would you look for it? How would you know when it was happening? I think this chapter gives us insight uh, for those of us wanting so badly for something just to happen in our lives. And I want to look at three things. I think uh, you got an insert there uh, if you want to follow my outline. Just three points. And the first one is this. Deliverance comes in unexpected ways. Deliverance comes in unexpected ways. And I wonder if you notice something. Uh, If you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll notice that God's name is not mentioned in the book. He's mentioned in chapter 1, but he's not mentioned as an active part of the overall story until the end of chapter 2. It's not until the end of chapter 2 that God is mentioned as an active uh, character in the story. And I want to suggest to you, what if that's the point? What if that's the point so that we can feel the plight of the Hebrew people? The Hebrew people enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. You think about uh, slavery as an institution in our country. What, 150 years or more than that? uh, And we're still feeling the effects of that to this day. 400 years of slavery. This is a slavish people. Where is God? What is He doing? Has He left us? So we meet this kind of apparent despair and apparent hopelessness of Israel's situation. But as the story reads, that apparent hopelessness is interrupted by a marriage and by a birth of a son. 
And who, if you read, again, you read through the first two chapters of of Exodus, who are the heroes of the first two chapters of Exodus? Women. It would be utterly strange to literature of the ancient Near East that the the main heroes at the beginning of the story are women. Now, you've got to understand, Moses was the guy in Jewish history. Right? He's like the Babe Ruth of Jewish history, like uh, Babe Ruth to the Yankees or Herschel Walker to Georgia football. I don't know if, how many Georgia football fans we've got. Um, that's about all i got. Michael Jordan, I think I grew up watching Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan to the sport of basketball itself, right? Moses was the guy. Yet, if it weren't for two seemingly insignificant Hebrew midwives, if it weren't for his mother and his sister, he wouldn't even be here. We don't even get Pharaoh's name in this book, Right? But we get the story of a loving mother, a watching sister, and a bathing princess. Now, that's a plot if I've ever heard of a plot, right? What we get a picture of here is that God works through the ordinary, through the common, through the seemingly mundane routine of life. God's purpose is unfolding beautifully. And we get a bird's eye view, so we see it happening. And all signs point to the point us to the fact this is no ordinary birth. And the grand irony of the beginning of this book is that everything Pharaoh plans for the demise of the Hebrew people actually ends up accomplishing the opposite. He he sets about this uh, law of severe oppression and genocide, and it actually produces flourishing among the Hebrew people. And then we have his own daughter playing an integral role in the salvation of the, of the Hebrew people. But think about this. How do you think Moses' mother felt? Try to put yourself in her shoes. Having a son says he's a fine child. The Hebrew kind of means that he was beautiful. He's a beautiful baby, and she loved him for three months, hiding him every day with the fear that if the wrong person figures out that her baby is a boy, he will be taken and thrown into a river. How should she, could she have felt living in that constant fear, living every day, feeling like the darkness was all around her? And God's name is never mentioned. And we get to feel what it's like to be a Hebrew. Do you ever have those moments where you ask yourself, where is God in all of this? Just peruse the headlines and you can find a few moments like that. Where is God in all of this? And the answer here initially for us is that he's in all of it. He's working behind the scenes. We call that in seminary God's providence, right? None of these seemingly mundane events, a marriage, a birth, a bath, none of them are insignificant. God is working everything according to his own purposes. And the continuing darkness that the people are living in, it actually only ends up being part of the story. It's not the whole story. But they couldn't see that. And if this is our story, which I would suggest to you it is, because it is a salvation story. If it's our story, what does this mean for us? It means this, that in the midst of the mundane, in the midst of the routine, in the midst of the everyday ho-hum of life, God is at work. He is. God's at work. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, she wrote a book about her conversion called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Unlikely being that she was a tenured feminist professor at Syracuse. She was also a practicing lesbian, and she became a Christian. 
And she writes this about her conversion at the very beginning of the book. I think this is amazing. She says this. How do I tell you about my conversion to Christianity without making it sound like an alien abduction or a train wreck? Truth be told, it felt a little like both. My Christian life unfolded as I was just living my life, my normal life. In the normal course of life, questions emerged that exceeded my existing worldview. So what she looks back at to us seems like such a fantastical uh, conversion story. She looks back at it and says, I was just living life that I thought, the, living it the way that I thought I was supposed to be living it. And God turned it upside down. God was at work. I don't know if you're, if you're anything like me. You don't like those services where people share their testimonies because mine's really boring. Grew up in a Christian home. I mean, mine's as boring as you get. I was born in the PCA, baptized in the PCA, uh, ordained in the PCA. You know, I'm PCA through and through. I can remember the summer. I can remember the week um, where God really worked in my life and faith came alive. Uh, But I always knew who Jesus was. I grew up going to church. And the thing is, is I look at that and I say, that's kind of a boring conversion, but or a boring uh, testimony. But the thing about that story is, in my life, God was at work. God was at work in my middle, upper class, white, privileged life, whatever. He was at work. And you could be here this morning. Maybe you've gone here for a long time. Maybe you haven't gone here for a long time. Maybe you've been to tons of churches, tons of Bible studies, and you see God at work in your life, and you praise Him for that, and you're looking and praying for Him to grow you in your faith and knowing that God's at work in your life. But others of you, many of you maybe, are plagued by the question, where is God in all of it? Where is He in all of it? Where was God in my parents' divorce? Where was God in my divorce? Where was God in the death of a spouse or sibling or child? Where was God in the the abuse that I endured that no one else knows about? And here's the thing to hear. The Bible never looks at those things and puts a Romans 8.28 stamp on it. Romans 8.28, a glorious, beautiful, true verse that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. But the Bible doesn't take that and just stamp it on your bad situations and circumstances. The Bible looks at the bad, the sin in your life, but both your sin and the sin that you've been a victim of, and He says those things are wrong. And those things are not good and those things will be dealt with. But the Bible does dare to suggest that God is at work in every single detail of your life. That God has ordained every single circumstance of your life. The Bible dares to suggest that, that He really is working and using all those things to accomplish something beyond our comprehension. I don't know if you've ever heard of a flash mob. It's been really popular over the last few years where a bunch of people, sometimes hundreds of people, all agree to show up in one place and all of a sudden start like doing a dance or something. It's really crazy and the videos are usually funny. Uh, but there was a show about it where this guy, he'd been in love with this girl for years and so he finally wanted to tell her, right? So he goes on a TV show to tell her. Um, and they're going to use this flash mob thing and this is what happens. The, the girl doesn't even know that she's in, he's in town. She goes out to dinner with a friend and all of a sudden in the midst of dinner... All the waiters, the music starts blaring, and all the waiters start doing the synchronized dance. And they're sitting there wondering what's going on. But then all of a sudden, everybody sitting at the tables in the restaurant stands up and joins and does the same synchronized dance. 
Then the friend that she's come to dinner with stands up and joins in the synchronized dance. And, and the circumstance, she's led out of the restaurant, she's led out onto the street, and there's hundreds of people lining the streets. And bit by bit, every single one of them starts doing the same synchronized dance. And they make it to where she can only walk a certain place, right? And she gets to this, uh, this big part of the street, and all of a sudden the music stops and everyone freezes. And the crowd parts, right? And standing at the end of the aisle... Is the guy. Now, how is she going to say no after that, right? <laughs> That's not the point. Um, but I remember at the end of the show, as the credits are rolling, she's kind of sitting there, sitting there. He's obviously grinning ear to ear. And she's just kind of sitting there, like, dumbfounded, like, trying to take it all in. I'll never forget, she looks right in the camera, and she just says, I just didn't know that there was someone out there that cared enough about me to do something like this. Man, that stuck with me. What if, what if all the events, all the circumstances of your life have not been you searching for meaning? Rather, what if all the circumstances of your life have been about someone searching for you? And not only searching, but pursuing you. And working everything according to His own will, for His own glory, and for your eternal good. What if? Let's move on. That's the longest one. That's a good one. Here's the second one. Deliverance comes through sin and failure. Now this seems seems, uh, paradoxical, right? Deliverance comes through sin and failure. And so what's so even more comforting uh, in this story. Not only is God at work, even when we don't know it, but God doesn't stop working when we screw it up. Get that. God doesn't stop working when we screw it up. You look at verse 11 there, we have Moses has grown up. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, he says that Moses was 40 at this time. He emerges, Moses emerges from the palace where he's been groomed all his life as a prince. And we're told that he comes out to identify with his people. He knows where he came from. He knows he's a Hebrew. He's coming out to identify with the burdens of his people. And he sees an Egyptian beating one of his fellow people. And he identifies with this victim. And he assumes the role of deliverer. And he strikes down the Egyptian. And now look, be honest. We're all kind of cheering at this point, aren't we? We love this part of the story. The thing is, is the author makes pretty clear that Moses was in the wrong. Moses knew he was in the wrong. He looks left. He looks right. He makes sure no one's looking. And then he does it. And in one fell swoop, Moses is filled with fear, guilt, and shame. And the people's deliverance is seemingly over. You think about Moses here. He was the perfect candidate for a deliverer. He was the man on the inside. He was the man with the connections and the resources to, to deliver the people of God. And now, in one rash act, he has completely blown it. And he flees to Midian and he's there for 40 years and he's just a lonely, lowly shepherd. Genesis 46, we read that Egyptians hated shepherds. Moses is exiled. And humanly speaking, think about this. Humanly speaking, Moses has delayed the deliverance of God's people for 40 years. We we figure a time later that Moses is 80 when he returns um, 
to, uh, to Egypt. Humanly speaking, by taking the law into his own hands, Moses has delayed Israel's deliverance by 40 years. Meaning, and this is not something I want to gloss over, but I just want to mention it, sin has consequences. God works through and despite our sin and our failure. And sin has real consequences. Here, the people of God will languish under slavery for another 40 years. But, what we actually see in this episode is that God still loves him. God still cares for him in the midst of his failure. And though he'd messed it all up, he flees to Midian, he finds safety, he finds a home, and he finds family. God providing everything he needs. You see, Moses emerged from the palace with this kind of air of braggadocia that he's just going to take... He's going to take the people's plight into his own hands, and he's going to deal with it. That's how we like to deal with things, isn't it? But God had another plan. And actually, in Numbers chapter 12, years and years later, we have God calling Moses the meekest man in all the earth. The meekest. In Numbers chapter 12, God calls Moses the meekest man in all the earth. Now, that doesn't square with Exodus chapter 2. So what happened? What happened? Well, we begin to see what happened as Moses is in exile in the wilderness. We see the man that God is making him into, and we see it in what he names his son. You see there in, um, well, where does it explain his name? Yeah, verse 22. He names his child Gershom. My translation says uh, he, he names him that because I have been a sojourner or a stranger in a foreign land. Gershom literally means one who is driven away. You see, God had no intention of raising up a brash, kill a man with his bare hands type of deliverer. That is not what God was calling Moses to be. First, God is going to deal with his pride and his self-sufficiency. And in the naming of his son, we see that Moses has come to realize something. And we actually have that expressed for us. The author of Hebrews expresses it for us at the end of chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we get this long list of heroes of the faith. And at the end of this chapter, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Moses... Names his child Gershom, meaning he realizes he's in exile. Meaning Moses has finally come to the understanding, I have not arrived. I'm not there yet. And what the author of Hebrews is telling about all those heroes of the face is what they realize is that they were being brought through something to something much greater. That God was at work, that they had not yet arrived. Now here's the question, when is it that you see God at work in your life? When are the clearest times to you when God is at work in your life? Well, it's easy to say that it's a God thing when the circumstances line up just right. It's easy for a college student to praise God for being at work in his life when he's met the person that he finally wants to spend the rest of his life with and he's in love and he wants to get married, right? God's at work. But is God not just as much at work when he brings a 12-month engagement to an end weeks before a wedding? It's easy to say God is at work when I've found my career, the, the place I know that I'm going to spend the rest of my life working for a living. 
Is it not true that God is just as much at work when you haven't been able to find a job for two or three or more years? God's at work. If Exodus is the pattern of the story, of our story, what it's telling us is this. God is at work even when it doesn't make sense. For Moses, it didn't make sense. He identified with his people. He thought he was doing what he was called to do. And he failed, and he failed miserably, but God was at work. What if God at work doesn't stop when you reject him? What if God being at work doesn't stop even when you've definitely messed it up? Even when you think that there's no way that he would still put up with you? What if God is still actually at work? What if your overwhelming inadequacy, your sin, your shortcoming, your inability to overcome these things, what if those are the very things that God is using to help you realize that you have nothing in and of yourself? And that if you're going to do what he's called you to do and called you to be, it's going to have to be from him. That's where God was bringing Moses. And that's where God brings all of us. Let's look at the last one here. Deliverance comes when we cry out to God. Deliverance comes when we cry out to God. Look at verses 23 through 25. They are amazing. I love them. And we see the drama as it unfolds. All these tiny little details. A Levite marries. They have a son. He's raised under unique circumstances in the halls of royalty. He commits murder and is exiled. And he marries and he has a son. And through it all, what was still happening? God's at work, right, in Moses' life. We see that. But what was still happening through those 40 years plus? God's people are still languishing in slavery. And we're told that they cry out to God. Where is God in all of it? In verse 24, we're told he hears, he remembers, and he sees, and he knows. Two things. Two things in these in verses 23 through 25. The first one's this. Deliverance comes when you cry out to God from slavery. Deliverance comes when you cry out to God from slavery. All the commentators remark on this, that it's not just that they cry out. It's verse 23. They cry out. It says it twice. They cry out because of their slavery. They cry out for help because they know that they are helpless. They know that they're in bondage. And this tells us, this tells us one, deliverance does not come when you get your act together. So many of us burdened by the sense every day that I've just got to straighten it up for God to do something in my life. We have this God that looks over our shoulder that's constantly telling us, you should know better. It also tells us that deliverance is not some magic potion. That God doesn't just swoop in and sprinkle magic powder on it and everything's okay. Some of us would do anything for God to show up in our life. And because some religious, spiritual epiphany or bomb has not dropped in our life, we don't know whether he's there or not. What this tells us is that deliverance comes when we say from the heart, I need rescue. Bondage is something I cannot do anything about. And I need nothing short of a rescue. The last thing this tells us is this. Deliverance comes from a God who knows. Deliverance comes from a God who knows. Knowing in the Old Testament... 
far beyond just a bare comprehension of facts. When we read at the beginning of the Bible that Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore a son, right? Knowing here involves an active entering into relationship with. It involves a coming down to, which God is going to tell Moses in chapter 3 that's precisely what he's done, that he's come down. So many of us just wish someone, anyone, knew what was going on with us. Right? You get this feeling, right? I just wish somebody knew what was going on with me. At the same time, you wouldn't dare tell anyone. And what this passage tells us is that God doesn't swoop in and play Mr. Fix-It and put a bow on it and say, okay, now smile, everything's okay. He comes down. He enters in with. He identifies with the plight of his people. He hears, he sees, he remembers, and he knows. This story shows us what God is going to do to relieve his people's suffering on a cosmic scale. And over a thousand years later, he would do just that when he came down to suffer with us and for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate proof. His life, His death, His resurrection as historical fact is living proof for us that God hears, that God sees, that God remembers, and that God knows. It always goes back to Him. He's the penultimate deliverer. The one who was never rash. The one who was slow to speak. The one who was silent as he was met with accusation after accusation. The one who obeyed the will of his Father to the fullest. Just so he could lay it down on our behalf. St. Augustine, I'll leave you with this. He puts it like this. How have you loved me, O Father? who did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us. Father, Your Son became both victor and victim for us. He became priest and sacrifice for us. Out of slaves, He made us sons, because though He was a son, He became a slave and served us instead of Himself. Rightly, my hope is fixed upon Him, and He will heal all the diseases of my soul. I asked you at the beginning, and I leave you with this. What's your story? What story are you believing today? What story are you telling yourself today? What story do you tell yourself every morning when you get out of bed? You think this one might be too good to be true, right? What if it is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the story. We love the story. We need the story. We need to hear it every single day. We pray that you would do that by the power of your Spirit. We would cling to our Lord Jesus Christ, our Deliverer. The one who has entered in with us. Who lives in us even now. Father, would we live for you? Would we live in him? We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. If you would stand for the benediction. For all those who know and believe the story, lift your head and receive the Lord's benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole soul, body, and spirit be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.